I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch Jake Gyllenhaal take Michelle Monaghan to the beam. You know, the Millennium Gateway. been to the bean two times in 14 years <laughs> really i would expect it was more i've been to the bean once and i have lived in chicago zero days it's very much a tourist thing like i mean i guess i've like walked by that part of you know millennium park a zillion times but i've uh actually walking in to take a look at the bean twice in 14 years i think uh when you looked at it did you ever think and go it's like there's a whole nother universe in there uh i usually walk by and go you know this would be a lot more majestic if it uh wasn't surrounded by dozens and dozens of tourists and uh (laughs) the city invested in more art pieces other than this weird abstract thing with a vaguely sexual nickname when you look at it those two times were you like that's my face now yeah i looked at it and i was like it's gonna be stuck there it was a face, but it's not your face because you have murdered someone's, I guess not boyfriend, just friend, but are now going to take the relationship to a next level now that you possess their body. Wait, hold on. You've... And this is a happy ending? Wait, you've been through the beleaguered castle program, right? Is that what the program is called? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. I, lo- I, okay. love, I love lore drops. <laughs> I love, I love lore. Sorry, it's such a dumb fucking name. I guess I must have forgot it. I think it's neat. I like that I'm a sucker for the Jason Bourne bullshit. Yeah, but it's beleaguered. Yeah. The castle that sounds like the right. beleaguered castle sounds like a like an old folks home. <laughs> Who would leave their grandpa the beleaguered castle? <laughs> I mean it's a castle, that's good. That's like leaving that's like taking your, your grandpa to a, a retirement home called a bridge over troubled water. If you want to take your grandpa to it, why is it good enough for our troops, Peter? I don't expect any respect for me as a troop. I think you should respect the people that are dying for your financial interests. Yeah. In all seriousness there, folks, I think uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Matt Damon should go to prison for stolen valor. You're not allowed to play a soldier in a movie unless you were one in real life, which also means John Wayne has to go to prison. Yeah. Get the shovels, boys. Yeah, that's why the only good movie is the whatever the five to seven train to Brooklyn. What the fuck is that? Uh, What's that Clint Eastwood movie? Where, yeah, all those people play themselves. 310 to Gitmo. <laughs> what was it called? I think it's the 517 to... 517 train to Paris or something. What a fuck? Like, look. I don't Clint. think we talk enough about how Clint Eastwood is fucking bananas. <laughs> fucking crazy i mean we talked we talked a lot about like him in the chair which like in, in all honesty is like we did at, mo- at but most people a, at most a pink flag compared to the red flags of yeah. uh the mule and worth noting that it's 12 so like a decade later right yeah. so like he's talking to a chair or whatever um uh, and then i guess like six seven years he's like what i want to do is create a historical event and I want all the actors to play themselves. And like everyone gets the casting sheet. And they're like, this is the script from Letters from Iwo Jima. He's like, yes, <laughs> with the real people. And everyone's like, Clint. He's like, all, when you ask questions all like that, 
you put us seconds behind <laughs> on the call sheet. Do you like being seconds behind on the call sheet? Oh, you're doing Clint's show voice. I'm doing his real voice that oh, he is yeah. not publicized. I'm actually I'm doing, Clint Eastwood. I'm actually doing Ronald Reagan because I think Ronald Reagan or Clint Eastwood is imitating one or the other. Do you think he even gave those guys scripts? He's like, just do the thing that you did in real life. We saved the train. Just wing it. I'm putting a real bomber on the train. Save it again or your lives are forfeited. <laughs> Well, like, okay, so let's let's talk about when I worked in my old job. And can we I let's put a to, let's put a quick pin on that where we love to watch for movie podcasts. We pick a theme. <laughs> we do movies over the course of that month around the, that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast. It's uh, this month is Groundhog Day uh, redo, uh, and we are doing time loop movies, and it's our second week of that, and we're doing Source Code, the Duncan Jones movie from 2011, uh, starring apparently a military project called Belie- Beleaguered Castle. Beleaguered All right, what Castle. did you do at your job? Can we, call the, can we call this month uh, Pete and Repeat? Sure. At my old job, they the were Adventures doing a of photo Pete and repeat. shoot for the, rec- the recruiting page to mm-hmm. make it look like we were all doing, like, you know, great cool design work at the marketing in the in the marketing i'm gonna make it sound like i'm a five-year-old um that i did i did not go to college for this um in the market no it doesn't show yeah it certainly does not um so they they had like a photo shoot for to get uh shots for the recruiting page and they were like reenact a typical meeting for you guys and we'll just take shots and then eventually, halfway through, they're like, this is really boring. And then they were like, all right, reenact the meeting, but have the conversation against a whiteboard and just draw, write down words as you go. And then they were taking more photos. And all of us looked so awkward in photos. They didn't use them, any of them for the shot for the website. Yeah. They only did used candidates from walking around the office and taking like candid photos. Now, Clint Eastwood said, uh... <laughs> There's a bunch of soldiers <laughs> who did it. Yeah, well, they were just people that were on a train that day. I thought some of them were. I thought some of them were military. Like I saw the fucking movie. I don't know. Yeah, I think they were. Military I just know he got the, all the all the people. Terrorism. Yeah, I feel like they got all the people except I have to assume the terrorists. So what I'm saying is this. Uh, we we couldn't in a low stakes scenario reenact something we had done an hour earlier. <laughs> Clint yeah, I mean, was like, you need to be the exact type of hero you were 12 years ago or whatever. I mean, like, Sully is a pretty, like, charismatic guy. Like, I mean, I guess I've seen him on two occasions in real life. One is interviews post uh, landing the plane, and the other one is telling Congress how much they suck at pretending to care about uh, pilots and other people. Um, both were compelling. He's a compelling dude. For that movie that Clint Eastwood directed, he wasn't like, get me Sully. He was like, actually get me the best actor on the planet. Tom Hanks. Like, which, if anything, I think that depending on how good of an actor they get to cast you in real life, actually... Oh, sorry. The, how good of an actor they get to play a real life character uh, is an inverse 
proportion related to that real life person's acting ability. <laughs> right? So, like, you figure if Frank Whaley, for example, has ever played a uh, real life character on screen, mm-hmm. that that person was the best fucking actor on the face of the earth. Like, that real life. Like, like Frank Whaley plays, I don't know, Joe the garbage man joe the garbage man should have played himself because he's an amazing actor but i have yeah, to assume- your math checks out because if two by two equals four then four divided by two has to equal two like if they had to get tom hanks to play sully sullenberger bad actor requires good actor it's um it's a it's a negative uh positive polarity situation you need you need someone to balance the yin and yang the hypothetical actors they would have cast in the 517 train to Paris are all Academy Award worthy. Yeah. Do you I think mean, that was a long enough walk for a joke that got no response from you whatsoever? Uh, so this is Duncan Jones' second movie. Duncan Jones famously grew from David Bowie's seed um, and became I, – I looked up Duncan Jones and I expected him to be 32 tops. He is 49. Uh, I think he started his, his career with Moon. Well, not, you know, started the start. It was, yeah. He did some yeah. shorts. But um, he started his, his full-on cinematic career. Um, his feature first big feature film was Moon. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he uh, got Moon off the ground a little later in life than I think we all thought. I think we all thought that was like... That was like, yeah, David Bowie's son has a leg up, comes up. He's like probably 22. I guess that's what I picture. Like, even though I guess full that, of goo, full of goo, and full of that Bowie goo, which is let's be honest, the best goo on the planet. Like, I top shelf goo. He only gets half of his dad's goo <laughs> genetically. Is that how it works? Well, you get fifty percent of your parents, each of your parents' genes, Peter. So yeah, didn't Gregor Mendel explain that to you? Uh, uh, that is how yes, it my, works. Yes, so I'm my, saying my, if, my, my anatomy professor, Gregor Mendel. <laughs> well, I'm not saying he had to be your professor. He's taught in the academic courses. I oh, believe. Oh, is he like on TikTok or something? Yeah. Yeah. Gregor Mendel. Yeah. He's got, he's got a great uh, dance about cross-pollination or whatever. <laughs> he was doing. Uh, but yeah. So what I'm saying is that like so David Bowie, I think most people would agree. Had the best goo. 100% pure, undiluted. Top shelf goo. Top shelf goo. And Bowie, like, he passed on his goo to Duncan. So, I'm not saying, like, so let's say say David Bowie's 100% Irish, right? That makes uh, Duncan Jones at least 50% Irish. 50% top shelf goo Mm -hmm. in this case. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't have good goo from his mom's side. Um, I I don't know her goo situation. It hasn't been as publicized. Uh, what what Such kind of gooation? Yeah. So as far, as far as I know, it's a hundred percent goo. But like, I can't speak for certain till I know uh, to her goo situation. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, goo like the dogs. Out. Do you think this is a waste of our lives? What we're doing? Absolutely. Like, ab- uh, oh yes. <laughs> I think I think ever this has actually convinced me that everything I do, um. Other than sorry, I'm not trying to give you. I'm not trying to give you an existential crisis, but like as I'm as I'm saying this, like I could I could have read a couple more books to my kids tonight. Yeah, what what, what do I do? (laughs) 
Uh, but anyways, can we, can uh, we step away from Goo real quickly? The reason his last name is Joe. All right, you want to wrap up Goo Talk? We can wrap up Goo Talk. Yeah, we're gonna say goodbye to Goo Talk. Um, and uh, the reason his last name is Jones is because a uh, funny thing about David Bowie. His name is David Jones, but he didn't yep. want to be associated with Davy Jones of the Monkees, um, the uh, the band that was ripping off Gorillas, I assume. Who? Because they're both from the primate family. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, Duncan Jones is using uh, David Bowie's uh, actual, you know, sort of familial name. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, he had a similar sort of thing. Um, I'm taking to... the name back today. <laughs> daddy, we've been Jones the whole time, Daddy. I want you to make music, son. I'm making films. <laughs> I'm making films. Wanna stop me from making films? <laughs> what what are you playing, son? Warcraft <laughs> We're doing work. The actual situation is is not dissimilar from the Joe Hill Stephen King one, except for Joe Hill Joe Hill is a nom de plume. Yeah. And and then eventually Joe Hill was like, fuck it, I'll write books co authored with my dad. Like it's fine. Um yeah, it's a similar situation where, like, in interviews, Duncan Jones, he's not, like, rude about it, similar to, to uh, Joe Hill. Uh, they're not rude about it, the fact that their dads are, like, rock stars in their field and, you know, literal, like, aliens on Earth brought to bring us uh, good music yeah. in the case of David Bowie. But they're sort of like, you know, it's my dad. Like, he was, you know, he's there at Christmas and he was, like, you know, he was gone sometimes for work. But, you know, he was my dad. Like, he, he like, does, neither of those guys seems to, like, give a good, uh, 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 an answer to interviewers that uh, interviewers ever want. And you feel like the interviewer is going yeah. out on a limb to see what happens. And Duncan Jones yeah. is always like, yeah, he was my dad. What do you want? Yeah, I mean, there's I, there's so many things that work there because one, you have like, you don't you don't know what they were like as fathers, which gets very uh, yeah. complicated for a lot of reasons. Like that's both of them had substance answer. abuse problems. Yeah, I mean, Stephen King literally wrote a book on what a crazed father he was, <laughs> and potentially terrorizing his son in his alcoholic fits of rages. Uh, that son was Joe Hill. He wrote a book about it. Um, so. Uh, and I think I have heard Joe Hill occasionally like dip into like, yeah, we're good now. You're right. Like th- it's not like it's not like a Ken Griffey situation, right? To like to p- go into sports. Like Ken Griffey Senior was a um, was a baseball player. He was an o- he was an okay baseball player. Like he was good. If Ken Griffey Junior's dad had been uh, like fucking Willie Mays or like one of the best baseball players, it just it's different, right? Like. It's not like, oh, I work in the entertainment business and my dad also worked in the entertainment business. Like, my dad was fucking David Bowie. Like, oh, I'm a writer and my dad is also a writer. Your dad is the most successful, one of the most successful authors of all time. Um, probably the most successful that's not a known transphobe. Um, uh, and that includes, uh, in that I'm including both J.K. Uh, Rawlings and uh, Jesus Christ, the author of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> Or God, I don't know. Maybe his dad also. He lived in a shadow, too. It's cyclical. It all makes sense. But, like, I get it. Like, that's tough, right? And even myself, like, it was kind of shocking doing a little bit of research for this film that he was 49 and here in 2021. Um, He might be 50 now. Uh, Now that it's February of 2021. Uh, And just because Moon still, I think, his best movie. We'll probably end up figuring out a way to do Moon. 
on this show at some point. Um, but that felt like the work of someone who got um, – that was like 24 just because it's one of those like vibrant indie pictures it feels like someone who's like i got an idea for a movie and it's going to be good and I, as soon as i get some funding and i got a name attached to it like it feels like a reservoir docs young director a lot of vibrancy in there like a specific style that he clearly already has mapped up in his head and then he meets harvey Keitel in an acting class or whatever it was and convinces him to do the script and you know and some of that was just done like you figure you skip ahead some of that struggling part that quentin tarantino and uh, you know all those stories went through and you go except in this case this guy could make a movie whenever he wanted he had connections so he did so the fact that that movie didn't get made till he was like 37 or 38 like it's not uh it's not like oh took him that long to make a movie it just was surprising and something i guess i assumed incorrectly as i was like uh, doing a little research for this movie. Like, what's interesting is that the other thing I didn't realize, he didn't write Moon. Uh, he has a story by credit, but he didn't write the script. He also um, was was a director for hire on Source Code. And then his next two movies, Warcraft and um, – fuck, I'm even forgetting the name of the Blade Runner ripoff that he did for Netflix. Mute. Mute. Um, which I haven't I, seen. I, I, I've seen it. I can talk about that if we need to. It's not good. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I have not seen. So, I, I'm I'm taking this more of like a general consensus to his like four films. Uh, but he wrote Mute 2. So, I, I think it's like it's a little bit easy enough to look at those and go, oh, okay. Well, he should have – He's a he's a good director – uh, both in like a visual stylist and like using like telling a story in a very economical way and moon uh, the economy, especially of characters, um, because there's essentially only one character um, and one uh, voice throughout the movie. And then in this one, like an economy of like just like 90 minute action with a twist storytelling Um and, he, and that, you know, that is a very tough skill. Like, we talk about how much uh, directors feel like bloat sets in or they, they really don't know how to comp- uh, uh, give give a compelling narrative to uh, to kind of that short film. It's one of the reasons that people, like, talk uh, in, about directors like a Tony Scott or something who, when he was at his best, was making, you know, under two-hour movies that, like, knew how to have an exciting first, second, and third ask or act. And then, you know, you you left the theater feeling energized uh, without necessarily, like, feeling like someone was trying to thrust um, – I don't want to – like, I, this almost sounds like reductive, but, like, an overt artistic vision. Like, I just want you to have a good time and I'm doing that by being a very good director, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I look at it though a little bit like, uh, like, you know, Jay, we, Peter, you and I were talking about this a little bit um, in in the green room, uh, or at least in the green texting <laughs> before the green room, and like green I made room. a. I made a joke about Jake Gyllenhaal that this – what if this movie had the enemy ending, which we will not spoil here. But it is interesting. So enemy comes out the year before Source Code, which kind of marks like Jake Gyllenhaal's moving into I think more and more interesting uh, movies and character. Like it seemed for a while he was going to be just like an actor for hire in these whatever. You know, he's he's in stuff like South Southpaw and Brothers and like. But let's all pause those there. Mo- let's pause there really yeah. quickly. It seemed like he was throwing away the promise of Brokeback Mountain. 
And Donnie Darko, for that matter. Like, whatever you think of Donnie Darko yeah. today, you walked away from Donnie Darko going, this guy's going to star in some more of my favorite movies. Yeah. But Brokeback Mountain was like, this is this is a movie that, uh, you know, this is a movie that, like, is challenging. It's thoughtful. He balances the movie on a fucking knife's edge. Like, no, he's not Heath Ledger in the movie, but um, he is, he, he, he became a sort of actor that, like, Anybody who wasn't homophobic um, in the critical community had deep amount of respect for. And anybody uh, who um, was paying attention would be like, he's not he's not the child actor anymore. He's not the the little cute kid anymore. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, I think. And and since then, let's. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal has become one of the most interesting actors out there, I think. Like, uh, whether we're talking about, like, his insane performances in um Okja and the John Mulaney lunchbox lunch lunch sack kid bunch or whatever. Oh, it's called like like truly he, unhinged. Truly like I've never seen anything like like I was sold by Okja by that one screenshot of Jake Gyllenhaal in costume in the movie before I knew anything about it, who the director was, anything. I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I need to see this movie I knew because Bob of Juno. this picture. Yeah, I was like, Bong Joon-ho created an environment where Jake Gyllenhaal felt comfortable enough yeah. becoming a fucking maniac to the degree that, like, people, if this went poorly, people would make memes about it. Like, it, it wouldn't necessarily sink his career, but it would no. definitely, like, make him, uh, uh, it would it would, it would would take the, the shine off of his star for sure. And I've seen Okja a couple times, and, um... Okja does not like it was a five star movie the first time I saw a four star movie the second time like it, it some of it is not as uh, just as surprising and as shocking upon rewatch that I think stuck me with the first time the part that only gets better is watching Jake Gyllenhaal in that movie and then seeing him essentially play the same character in John Mulaney's kids show on Netflix is uh, I could watch that over and over and over but I mean there's so many other great stuff too like Nightcrawler he just has become this person who is like I don't know. He's definitely one of our best actors, but I. It was around this time. It was this movie in Enemy that it was like, all right, Jake Gyllenhaal's doing some interesting like stuff again. He's not doing in these like middle brow three star art movies that that doesn't even get like shitty Oscar. Doesn't even get like. Um, Oscar noms because it's just like Oscar also rands like the top 30 best best chances to get a best supporting actor and like you know Southpaw's like 30th on that list or something and you're mm. like oh who saw Southpaw um and again Southpaw may be fine like it, it's yeah, it, that's what he's a he's a work <coughs> actor it's that yeah. and end of watch like he's actually very end chasm- watch. charismatic and yeah. nice but it's something that brothers yeah, I haven't seen Brothers. All I know is it's like, uh, isn't the Iraq War bad movie? And none of those. Yeah, he was just doing saw. a lot of that. But then, so Enemy comes out. This comes out, and I'm you know paying more attention to Jake Gyllenhaal. Felt like he was fulfilling both both the promise that I had after Donnie Darko, the like re like enter enter uh, the re enter. Oh, Jesus, that's not a word. Uh, the re energized. Yeah, that's what I was going for, but that's not quite what I mean. But like, just feeling re-energized by his the material that he's choosing, his performances after Brooklyn Mountain, and then now he's doing this. Enemy actually, like, I think because Enemy and Moon and like they 
these two directors, Duncan Jones and Dennis uh, Villeneuve, Vu? Villeneuve, Villeneuve, um, I think they both felt like like when you saw Enemy and you saw uh, Moon. I think those are two movies that you're not just going. These are fucking movies I really liked. You're also going. Who are these guys that directed <laughs> these? And I would just like. It's interesting to look at that now because. Even looking back, I think what you end up having is like Dennis Villeneuve just has a had a more distinct visual style and also just like what he was trying to accomplish. Competent director, like telling a story. He's also a stylist. And I think that and I do I mean this in absolutely no disrespect. I think I would have considered Duncan Jones, a similar director in 2010, 2011. And now seeing where, where uh, Dennis's film uh, career has gone and seeing where Duncan Jones, I just think like, yeah, maybe Duncan Jones was just, I'm competent at telling a, a story well. But I'm not quite the visionary director that, like, I lumped him into as, like, a new generation of visionary directors at the time that Moon and this came out. I, I actually compare him to um, Neil Blomkamp. Yeah, that's a good – that's a good comparison. But – and also a great call-out because another guy in 2009, I was like, holy shit, I need more Neil Blomkamp movies. Where the fuck did this guy come from? Neil Blomkamp is a guy who I stand up for despite, like, not particularly loving his – past couple of movies um, when you see him or when people talk about him are you like hey that's neil blomkamp <laughs> he was the director of a short promotional movie for the game anthem which is currently selling for three dollars on disc and was uh, i saw two but okay <laughs> <laughs> but neil blomkamp made incredibly smart visual shorts uh and then all of a sudden he got his big break and he made uh district nine and duncan jones made moon and they impressed everyone and everyone's like who is this wonderkind and then they got a chance to follow it up and the divergent path is duncan jones um got to make a successful hollywood thriller but a movie that was like kind of too weird for its own good in a sense like there there's there's a little bit too much it's a movie that i quite enjoy but i'm saying for a mainstream audience there's a little bit too much in source code and neil Baumkampf never made that transition like he made elysium that was supposed to be his source code basically saying like i'm gonna take my aesthetic but i'm gonna have fucking matt damon wearing a, a you know the, the the metal suits and shooting the crazy guns and spaceships and such and like that is a movie similar to chappie that i would say um <laughs> Are... Have you seen Chappie? I've seen Chappie. Oh, I've seen I mean, Chappie. literally, seen Chappie like, two or three someone times. pointed to you and say, no, I haven't seen Chappie. But... Um, yeah, well, somebody, yeah, when I was watching the film, someone reached over to me and said, that's Chappie. Good. And I was like, oh, that's what I, that's I essentially forgot. like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, did you get the full experience of this movie? Yeah. Did you go see it in a theater or did you see it at home? And I feel like the whether someone points at the screen and lets you know that's Chappie 
is the is the same thing. Yeah, it's just not the same experience unless there's a sort not of the same experience. A, no. a, a interactive element, right? Just um, yeah, but just the one. But yeah, just the one. So Elysium was him trying to make a source code, and I'm not totally sure why people rejected Elysium so much because it's ultimately like a pretty badass action movie. Is it good? I never. It was one of those it. things where I was super excited about. And then, you know, you see those things that get, like, not to throw Rotten Tomatoes into it, but, like, every film critic is, like, giving it a C C to C plus, and it's getting, like, 40 or 50% on, yeah, on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm just, like, I'm not going to, like, not that I'm angry about it, but, like. It's like, okay, well, maybe I'll get to that. And then I just never get to it because it's it's not a compelling ask. It's why I never saw Mute. Like, it was on Netflix yeah. easily available, but it's like, okay, well, I do I want to devote two hours to something that seems like the best case scenario is I go, oh, that was a three-star movie. I'll never watch it again. And the worst case scenario is I hate it and wish. Like, that's what Elysium, for, you know, that's what Chappie felt like, too. It just is like... Oh, yeah, I like I don't go to movies for the most part to um to and I I know and to like to, well to to hope I get a mediocre experience at best. And also it never had the thing that like a lot of movies that I that I passed on on first go round never had. Like I never met the people that were hardcore Elysium or mute defenders, right? That are like like that post a long thing like hey, like a love fest entry like they we used to do for the dissolve, yes. right? Like that just didn't happen with those movies. So you you kind of go like, yeah, I probably won't hate it, but it just seems like a waste of time. So my the argument I'm going to make here is that uh Duncan Jones got success with source code and he said, yeah. "Okay, I'm going to He's getting all these crazy sort of offers. This is sort of a a memento or something. This is a, we're going to give you some money, some studio resources, and and if you can prove yourself here, maybe Batman Begins is maybe a better budget comparison, but um, that's a huge Yeah, because... Because Moon, small budget, 5 million, he gets source code 30 million, makes five times his budget. Yeah. So maybe Batman Begins is a better comparison, though obviously yeah. that has the superhero thing, so it's you know a little bit more prickly. But l- let me let me carry down my point. Source code um, is uh, studio system. All of a sudden says, "Shit, this is what you did with all this money. Um, mm-hmm. Fantastic! Like we're gonna start throwing offers at you." So you start throwing offers at him, and they th- they throw. Uh, Warcraft at him. And from what I understand, like he was a fan of the subject material. Um this is not like a He was a, a fan, yeah, of the the both the original um Greek poem, I believe, and then the text that followed throughout. Yeah, yeah. He he uh yeah, he actually took the Bill and Ted time machine, went back met uh Socrates, for some reason i i find i find telling, you uh, describing the warcraft games as the source material is very fun to me. yeah i i, I kind of went into like uh gamers that give a weird amount of respect to the whole thing but whatever he went back he he loved the games he loved the lore he loved the world and he's like i want to play in it great respectable but that game that was clearly them trying to make a lord of the Rings style thing this is them saying we're going to make the next big fantasy epic that everyone's gonna freak their shit about we're gonna make seven of them and the end of the movie they hint at you know more movies that will never ever come um 
Neil Blomkamp made Elysium, which I think is like stylistically gorgeous. Like his, he, he, say what you will about the guy. He carries his like aesthetic and his style, which is really cool forward in all of his movies. Chappie, Elysium, both have it. Chappie's a worse movie than Elysium. Elysium is a sort of functional movie with really rad action scenes and lots of practical gore matched up against all this like crazy sort of visuals. He got slapped in the hand for that. Like, oh, people don't want this movie. And which is an interesting thing. Which like, made, made me wonder why like, he thought people wanted Chappie as a follow-up, but okay. Um, but the point, and then he was like, Chappie felt like a retreat. That was him. After he got slapped on the wrist, he was like, I'm going to go make another weird South African movie. I'm going to try and make my District 9, you know, and, and you know, I'll have a little bit, I'll have, I'll have more, way more resources than before. I can hire Hugh Jackman, but like, I'm going to keep my old crew back. Um... And that sort of thing is like interesting because from that point on, uh, Neil Blomkamp got into making short visual films, many of them video game involved, because he was supposed to make a Halo movie in 2005 and Microsoft's demands were too fucking crazy. Uh, Duncan Jones got to make his video game movie, he got to make his Warcraft, yeah. but obviously Blizzard wasn't that protective of their property, and the 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 movie actually happened, and it you know it kind of kind of bummed him out. And at that point, Duncan Jones had his retreat, which was I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna make the original trilogy I wanted to make, which was Mute, and then he has another one. I'm forgetting the name, but it's it's being adapted to a graphic novel. So like Duncan Jones's career is in also in full retreat right now. It seems like because Mute yeah. also nobody liked and it was picked up by Netflix as like uh it was supposed to be a big prestige thing for them and kind of nobody liked it. I didn't like it. It's a weird movie that is like. Hey, have you ever seen Paul Rudd be an absolute fucking monster? Do you want to see that for two and a half hours? And audiences everywhere, including me, said no. <laughs> yeah, and again, I not to come back to it, like, it seems like when it comes to Duncan Jones, the answer is pretty simple. Like, don't write your own movies. And I, I get it. Like, there's four movies out there. I am, I am basing that on <laughs> looking at... Um, you know, the two movies he did that he didn't write and the two movies he did that he did write. But I will say, like, I think one thing about uh, quote unquote auteur theory and all this stuff about, like, the director being the author of movies is, like, you forget, like, who's, like, the most successful directors of all time? Like, Spielberg, Hitchcock, they didn't write their fucking movies. Like They, they cherry-picked scripts that they thought yeah. were... Were, were meeting to their criteria. Yeah, and then they had, like, they have friends that would go and do rewrites. And, you know, they wouldn't necessarily go and say, I want this to be the story or the third act. They'd be like, I want this to be snappier and I'd like a better, like, MacGuffin here. And, like, you know, they they throw out ideas because they'd have an idea of what they wanted to present. And I think a lot of times the best directors, like... You know, th that's what they do. They're like, I like, I know what Indiana Jones looks like, but if I sit down and write the beat, the plots and the the lines and the how we how we connect the story from A to B, it's not going to be as good as if like Lawrence Cadson writes it. So I'm going to have Lawrence Cadson write it. Um, and and I think that's like I think the Quentin Tarantino's and a lot of these people that like are like are making 
you know, I this gets into some some weird pretension, but like I think Quentin Tarantino is an example, and a lot of these guys that are like write their own movies and make make really good material. Quentin Tarantino is a writer that also knows how to direct. Like his characters, his world comes from his dialogue, the beats that he's put in the story, the way he like jumble, you know, he tells stories in sometimes unconventional ways. Like all that, he needs to write that because he's the one like or he needs to direct those films because he's starting what that looks like on the page where like a Spielberg or someone else, or, you know, uh, I guess Hitchcock didn't even direct, um, you know, some of his movies, I guess. Well, he directed a lot of them. Sorry. Um, for some reason I got just cut that. Uh, but like, it's, it's because, you know, Spielberg has a sense of like how to tell an adventure story or a drama or historical thing. And he knows how to present that in a way to the audience, but he's not like someone who like, I need to tell these specific stories. And that's why I start them from these little germs of ideas that have been in my head for 20 years and stuff like that. And I think like that kind of, I want to be the next Quentin Tarantino or, you know, fill in your, your writer in this case, like it does a lot of these directors a disservice. And I would just hypothesize that's what happened with Duncan Jones. Um, and again, those examples are so many, like Scorsese doesn't write most of his movies. Like, but when you see a Martin Scorsese movie or Spielberg movie or what, or whatever else you're like, Oh shit, that's a Scorsese movie. That's a, you know, Tarantino, or that's a Spielberg movie. And it's, it's you know I I wish some of these these directors didn't feel like they needed to be the author of their own movies and like or th- like and, and let's fine like have an idea Spielberg all these guys have ideas then you hire writers to break the story and turn it into the three act structure or whatever else it is and then when you decide that some of the dialogue of that writer's not working you have the student like I I don't know like there is. There is a world where not everyone has to be the author of all their own works. And I think, like, Duncan Jones and I would hypothesize Neil Blomkamp and some of these other guys are in the same boat. Like, you're a good director. Have someone else write your shit. When you get isolated as a visionary director, people start expecting you to chip in on the um, the vision stor- and the vision, and and also that that creates a problem. You are part of developing a property creates problems for movies like mute where like he's expected to write the whole thing himself and and you know that causes huge fucking problems um but it also creates problems with something like warcraft where like they're like we got the warcraft property we brought the director on now we need to bring writers on and when the director is expected to be a visionary part of the storytelling process and then the director is like has all that pressure on them they start exerting that pressure which is like totally fucking understandable and when you're not when you're in a, a position of true power like the the the, the, the um spielbergs and the, and the hitchcocks you can uh you can actually control which stage of the process you come in on you can say like I, i'm not really in the you know um developing of scripts business like come to me when you have a good script i'll read it and if if i like it i'll move on it that's sort of the hitchcock mold and spielbergers say like you know i like this i like this property i like this idea um and i'll be part of the development process but you know i'm very busy it's gonna take time and then like there was this whole like robot war movie that spielberg was working on um with chris hemsworth that just like fell apart because like 
Spielberg got distracted by his other hundred projects he was supposed to be working on because he was in a position of power. And when Duncan Jones is, but when Duncan Jones is in that position of power, like he doesn't have the position of power. Like producers are putting, they're they're not just hanging their hat on him. They're putting, they're putting uh like all of this exertive pressure on him and i used the term retreat earlier for both him and neil blomkamp and i did not mean that as an insult to them i mean that as a um going back to the basics kind of kind of um uh career development which is to me sad like i feel like duncan jones is uh is a good director i think he has a nice wild touch and i think that he should be uh given more movies like source code these conceptual thrillers conceptual sci-fi movies for him to come in once the script once everything is kind of baked and be like all right how do i personalize this to my touch um but the core concept the core characters all of that is already developed because mute has like painful script problems like i have no fucking clue why he made that his next his passion project because that is like that is like a a first draft and then the second draft you actually like delete whole characters kind of script yeah i I, and i get like i know i use some big names there but like think of like visionary directors like spike jones and michelle gondry for the most part don't direct uh, don't write their own stuff and like those are like two people I'm just, you know, like that were like, for me, they were my visionary directors. Well, they had Charlie Kaufman writing mo- both of their their stuff for the most part. And then when they went and wrote their own stuff, sometimes you get a her and sometimes you get a science of sleep that no one talks about because it's not good. Very good visually. <laughs> I was thinking um, about that movie literally yesterday and <laughs> I, I think I'm the only one on earth that remembers that movie. So thank you for confirming yeah, that that movie no, I've does seen it. I still exist. Re- I still remember going like, oh, I don't like this, I, but I love Michelle Gondry. And then you're like, well, he's he's cr- he, like, you know, and it came right after Eternal Sunshine, which I guess is also a perfect like Eternal Sunshine was like. Still one of my favorite movies of all time. You watch that and you go, the guy that directed this could do anything. And then he's like, I'm going to do anything. And he makes Science of Sleep, which he wrote. And you're like, oh, this is missing everything that's important. But still has the visual stuff down. So it's confusing because I don't like anything, but it looks the same. And like even Science just of Sleep circle- is maybe a corollary to Elysium. Then, because the visual yeah, stuff's all there, but like the actual like structure of what makes a good story is not. And just to go back, like, I feel like this is good, like, um, all the way around. Like, you know, we mentioned, I mentioned Dennis uh, Villeneuve. Like, he didn't write Enemy. He didn't write Sicario. He didn't write Arrival. He didn't write Blade Runner. <laughs> like, he wrote Incendies, his first movie that, like, got a lot of, like, recognition and stuff like that. And then I think he figured out that, like, I'll let someone else tell the story. And so I, the, the, he's just a weird example. Like, normally, these guys get their start writing a movie. That's why I assumed Moon was like film student. I'm 24. I have some connections. I'm going to shoot my shot. Um, and, you know, did well only to find out he didn't write that. And then later on decided I'm going to write my own movies. Uh, seems like a mistake, but we're not, I, it's just interesting to talk about. Cause I do feel like there's this wave of like, you know, every 10 years, there's these visionary directors that like I – and I'm just saying this for myself. Like you start – like in your head, you start going, Edgar Wright. I need to see when – next time Edgar Wright comes up with a movie, I'm going to go see that movie. Or when I was younger and like Spike Jones, Michelle Gondry, like all, like next time they have a movie, 
I'm going to see that movie. And, you know, these were these guys were a little more recent, like a Duncan Jones. Like, when he has a movie, I'm going to go see that movie. And it's just so many of them don't last that long. But I think when you're there for, like, the real time of that, it feels a little, a little sadder. So, this is kind of uh, – and this really is, like, he had no story cr- credit. Jake Gyllenhaal saw Moon, wanted to hire him for this movie. Uh, because he was cast in based on the script and they were looking for a director. So this really was kind of like weirdly his his most work for hire uh, uh, movie. And I, I'm not going to say it's more successful than Moon, but it's definitely more watchable um, in that it does not feature Kevin Spacey in any capacity. Um, and it's just like it is so short. It is like sub 90 minutes. And um one thing we didn't talk about at all, which may be the last thing we talk about, and then we can transition to the movie, which I think will be – again, the the movie is really – it's slight in the best possible way. Um, so, there might not be too much to talk about in the actual movie. Oh, but, yeah. We're being super negative uh, about the these careers. About Duncan or, Jones, his career's trajectory. But source yeah, code we're, is We're great. lamenting that he didn't yeah. get to make more movies like this and Moon. <laughs> he did, yeah. But, it's, but it is like – because it is such a compelling, thrilling action movie with like a couple questions along the way, like it, it is, it is. I I remember like I paused it. And I'm like, what has it been? Twenty minutes? I'm gonna go run to the bathroom, and it was sixty minutes. I'm like, fuck. I joked like, with you that this movie is uh is fifteen minutes long. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It feels that way because it, it's and again such a such a skill as a director. That gets overlooked, like the ability to tell a complex, compelling story in a easy to follow way that like is, is super compelling. Um, and he, he knocks it out of the park here. Although, ironically, something we almost talked about doing for the show, even as a double feature with this movie at one point uh, that this movie most resembles is uh, the Denzel Washington, the Tony Scott movie, Deja Vu. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure why we didn't fit this into uh, Groundhog Day 2, but I, we got to do some Tony Scott movies, right? At some point. Yeah, I guess I'm less interested in doing Deja Vu. I actually think that this is a more compelling version of the Deja Vu time loop concept, which it's was certainly a tighter movie. Deja Vu tighter, is a, yeah, is Deja a, sl- like is a sloppy, uh, a, a, a sloppy hangover kind of like uh, uh, like taking a bump of uh, cocaine to shake off a hangover. That's what uh, that's what that era of Tony <laughs> Scott is to me. Like that. It's not a clean movie to look at, but it has it has, certainly has its strengths. It's, yeah. Uh, weird De- De- Denzel Washington era too. Like he's doing like Man on Fire and like um, he's trying to take some... a little bit of the. He's trying to get to the to the grodier side, which I respect. Yeah, he's trying to follow up Training Day, I think, with a little more edge. And I like I like Deja Vu, um, and I like some other stuff. He like the this, the Manchurian Candidate remake that Jonathan Demme did was fantastic. I love it's that. really good. It's, it's um it has no right to be that good. No right to be that good. Um. But I, yeah, I, I guess like Deja Vu, the reason uh, it, it's worth mentioning is that kind of started like, at, there's not that many time loop movies. There's enough. There's there's probably like 50 or so um, that kind of use this as a conceit. But Deja Vu really took that idea of like, I'm using it to solve a crime. Like I am, I am entering this time loop from a kind of an outside structure, and uh, and investigating, reliving the same time frame 
um, not to change the past, not not um, on accident, not because of a mystery necessarily, but because I am trying to use the information that could be discovered into into getting past. It's almost the um, well, somewhat Majora's Mask version. Like until you figure this out perfectly, you're not moving on to the next part because the the time is going to reset. Um, not a perfect metaphor, but it it, it is. It feels more video gamey. Like until you get this right, we can't move on Here's to your the next mission. Level. Do it. Yep. We're gonna we're gonna sit here and wait until you get it done, and then make fun of you for not getting it done. <laughs> now, Deja Vu suffers from I think just <clears throat> taking that concept to two and a half hours and being super messy and not really having like a central like it is essentially a it's using the time loop as a window dressing I think to solve a a compelling mystery like the mystery in that movie is legitimately compelling the solution it arrives at is compelling the way that like of course then they need to uh throw off the the reins that they've shown to how the time loop works at the end for because that's what the audience wants to see but ultimately the time loop is just a fun way to to make a mystery movie with a little bit of a science fiction and action edge. And I think it's very successful at that. I think the thing that source code takes from that is go, okay, what if instead of, what if instead of a mystery needs to be solved, we're going to position it as a mystery that needs to be solved, but who gives a shit about the mystery at all? Like at some point, we're just going to say this guy did it and that's going to be good. I don't mean that as an insult. It's very good, but ultimately we're going to investigate uh, through the lens of an action movie, uh, what it means to be able to create a time loop to investigate murders or terrorism actions. And I think that's why I th- we settle on source code because not only is it shorter, which we both love, uh, it's just a it's a far more compelling way to use the time loop as a murder solving machine uh, than Deja Vu. It's a more efficient film, but also I would say this film goes to weirder, darker places than Deja Vu does. Oh, it does. Yeah. Deja Vu is on its surface far darker. However, um, it's more grody. It's more dirty. Like characters are more outwardly damaged. <clears throat> but source code goes to places where that are like um, sci-fi horror concepts that they just like they'll they'll like waypoint it out to you. They'll flash a they'll flash the flashlight on it for a second, and then they'll turn the flashlight off. And then you're like, wait, what the fuck did I just? Wait, what? They're gonna keep <laughs> this guy as a fucking coma yeah. slave? forever and keep wiping his memory whenever he protests like that's horrific like what kind of hell is this well and part of that works because they don't have enough time to dwell on it in the same way a deja vu does because jake gyllenhaal doesn't have any time to dwell on it he um he is like working out the horror that he's living while he's reliving the time loop because of the nature of his existence and the way the time loop or the source code works. So I think it's a perfect transition. Peter, do you want to talk more about the movie Source Code? Uh, Peter, you are alternate taglines. I sure am. And I have them ready. Chicago, the Big Apple goes boom. <laughs> well, this is a portion of it. 
How about this one? Chicago City of Lights goes bright with explosions. If this movie had been made three years later, the guy doing the terrorism would be like, I'm blowing up this city to let them know that we need ethics and gaming journalism. (laughs) (laughs) When I last saw it, I lived in Chicago. So I think I kind of took it for granted that the first eight minutes of the movie would be a beautiful... You know, summery, bright, shimmering image of the city. I didn't think that would hit uh, my wife and I so so much so hard um, because we haven't really been home since you know COVID happened and yeah, we left the city basically three years ago um, to move to, to California and like you know I, I I miss it. I didn't leave because I fucking loathe Chicago, so I didn't expect that to hit me. No, I feel the same way. Anytime I see it, like a bunch of wind and hatred, I'm like, ah, oh, North Dakota. It's been a while <laughs> since I've been back. You see that Paul Bunyan uh, statue that you keep in your front yard? You didn't yard make it to like... North Dakota? Like, I do feel like, so the terrorist, like, his motivation is like, uh, the world's rotten. I want to I burn it all down and we got to build something better in the place. And, like... What would really happen if this guy did this, right? Well, the the best case scenario is that they find the guy and that guy is punished and there's no other thing. The worst case scenario is that the people in power, like, use this to execute all of their fascistic agenda of, like, uh, Patriot Act shit that we already lived through when a terrorist attack happened. Like, you know, we did a, a bunch of stuff that, like all the fascists in government wanted to do anyway, and now everyone was scared enough to go along with them, or at least a a plurality of the news media and uh, voters. So it's like, we it, that doesn't work either. Like, you cannot... Uh, like, people are literally seem to be hoping for, like, um, eventually it gets so bad that it's like a post-World War II reckoning sometimes. It's like, that was lucky. First of all, very lucky it turned out that way. Could it not turned out that way? It did turn out the way that evil was defeated at the cost of literally a genocide and millions and millions of war dead and a completely destroyed continent. Blah, 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 blah. And yeah, at the end of it, some people, some people went like Germany, like, okay, we need to do a little bit better, I think. And then some countries that we, we have as a success like uh, uh, the United States was like, hey, I got an idea. Let's form an organization that kill that stops any progressive movement across the country by murdering their leaders so we can continue to be involved in global affairs. So, like, it's 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 sorry. It's just like it is a I'm glad that this movie treats it with the disdain. Like Jake Gyllenhaal, like is like you're a you're an idiot. Like fuck you. You're so dumb. You suck. Like I love the little speech that Jake Gyllenhaal gives him when he is leaving the message for the for the police to arrest him or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a little piece of shit. Like it's great. It's the right way to approach these ideas. And the guy just sits there and just takes it, which is like you yeah. know exactly how these people are. They 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 once confronted, they turn into a crumbling ball of they, they're all they're all hate and and bile and spewing messes when they're on their YouTube channel and they're or they're on Gab or yeah. Twitter or whatever. But the moment you actually confront them face to face and you actually like in any way deconstruct their pain, yeah. um, they just turn into like sobbing pathetic messes and i kind of like i kind of this movie did not predict trumpism 
That'd be incredibly short-sighted to say that. And you're not saying that. I'm saying that because I my first reaction was, this movie predicted anti-government, uh, puritanical, white, angry white man thing. But like that thing has existed forever. And what this movie is really inspired by is school shooters and Timothy McVeigh. Like, yeah, it, it's inspired by people who were like, the system sucks. The government sucks. The, what? How can I take that apart by blowing up as much uh, as I can and hoping the system collapses in, in, in you know, the, the earth becomes so um, unstable that the system collapses into the heap with it. And, you know, if or, I or the some, fight if I club take myth, right? with it, if I have to take some, you know, non people with it, uh, so be it. Yeah, and it's worth noting, like, and that's the Fight Club thing, too. Like, we're going to blow up all the buildings and everyone's credit resets. And then no one's going to know who's rich or not. It's like, I think they'll figure. Like, I like Fight Club um, because that is about how dumb those people are or whatever. Um, and and how their, like, disaffected uh, nature just leads to, and uh, like, violence that doesn't solve anything. Literally, they're just beating the shit out of each other. Um, but, like, the message that a lot of idiots or whatever took away from it was um, – yeah, we should blow up credit card buildings and shit. But uh, it, it's worth noting, I'm not the first person to point that out, but the people that have those ideas are usually generally affluent white cis straight males because they've actually never had to fight for any rights or freedom or to make the system better. And like if you talk to whether it's uh, gay people, black people – uh women like anyone who's been a part of like or continues to be a part of a level of like marginalization and disenfranchisement and you know stuff like that like they will tell you like if you look at the historically long efforts to go to be seen and treated equally and um as other human beings like it's not done from someone you know blowing up a building it's like a lot of like um fights that have a high personal cost and the nature of the type of like destruction that like the the terrorists in this movie and other right leftists what you know gamer gators destroy the system type people are is that they are literally talking about destruction that uh, requires almost no personal sacrifice for themselves they're going to kill other people um in the with the intent of other people then deciding to change the system for them so a little bit of a I guess probably a little soapbox, but important to remember, like the people that are actually fighting for uh, a better tomorrow are actually putting their own bodies and lives, families, freedom on the line in order to make that happen. And uh, it's these kind of assholes who are trying to hurt other people to make their life marginally better. Love that the villain in this movie is specifically outlined as a post- This is a uh, post-Iraq uh, War movie in many ways. Yeah. Oh, Let's talk about the, the most obvious. Let's really quick. Let me – I'll run through the plot. It'll take 60 seconds. Yep. So Jake Gyllenhaal plays a soldier who's in Operation Arduous Fortress um, where he uh, he is uh, – he just start. They start the movie right away. He is like on a train. Um, he's across from Michelle Monaghan, who knows him. He doesn't know her. He goes into the mirror. Uh, you see that the the person in the mirror is not Jake Gyllenhaal. He is wondering what the fuck's going on. The train blows up. He wakes up uh, in kind of a what feels like a downed helicopter with random video screens. Uh, it looks cold. It looks empty. It looks like he's buried under a pile of rubble or something. And he's talking to uh, Vera Firminger, 
and uh, Jeffrey Wright eventually, who are just telling him like, hey, this is all part of an operation you signed up for. Tell me the code words uh, and then explain to him eventually what they're doing, that there is a this um, there is a bomb that blew up a train in Chicago earlier that same day. Um, he signed up for this operation that allows them to take a replication of those eight of eight minutes of the universe. In this case, the eight minutes where this leading up to this explosion and allow him to travel into one of the uh, one of the people a part of its head basically exist as them in that eight minute universe uh, from the get go he's saying like this is this doesn't seem right I was able to do stuff outside of this scenario like and Jeffrey Wright is pretty adamant that like yeah the whole world exists but it's like I'm making essentially a simulation but it's a simulation of reality so you can do whatever you want but the universe is going to cease to exist as soon as the bomb explodes and we find out um through a few of these iterations as he uh, starts figuring out like who Michelle Monaghan is and starts to realize she's a really good person. That part works for me a little less. We can talk to that. Yeah. Uh, we, we can talk to that a little bit more later on, but like, and like starts to kind of figure out how he's going to solve this. And he takes a few swings that end up being incorrect. But one of the most important swings is he ends up off the train and the train explodes and he is still existing within this universe. Um, until he uh, accidentally dies uh, through kind of the the mayhem, uh, so eventually um, it's revealed to him. This is kind of the the midway point twist. I like that the, the movie doesn't um, save this for like an ending twist or some shit like that. Instead, it's like you know something's up because it randomly gets cold. Randomly, uh, Vera Farmiga and um, Jeffrey Wright have trouble getting in touch with them. Um, we only see his view screen of them. We never see him talking to him. He keeps asking where they are. They don't want to talk about any of that shit. They're just like, okay, go back. Give us any information you have. You find out that he died. He died in uh, in Afghanistan, I believe. Or is it Iraq? I think it's Afghanistan. Uh, his helicopter went down, I think, in Afghanistan. I, think, I could let's, be wrong. Let's just say Afghanistan. It sure. doesn't ultimately matter. It like, really he died. Matter. He died in the quote-unquote war on terror. Yeah. Um... And, uh, and so he's dead and that he, but he, uh, apparently signed up for a mission. Unclear whether that's true or not, or they're telling him it, that he was going to be used after death in the event that he died. He signed something, whether, uh, whether he was aware of what he was signing or not, that allowed him to participate in this program that allows, um, basically, uh, them to keep a part of his brain alive while he's in stasis because that's the only person that they can put in this. He's in a coma, but without brain damage. But he'll never come. No, they said he said he's he's legally dead, but they've kept a portion of your brain alive to participate in this program. It's so not the whole brain. He needs to be the right kind of coma. Right kind of coma where you're dead. Like you can never come back to life. It does matter later. The reason I'm harping on it is it does matter. Yeah, you know the movie trope where you die, but then your brain is like dying for six minutes after your heart stops or whatever, and you're like in that time you're not getting oxygen. It seems like they needed to pause it in that time frame. Like you're dead, you're not coming back, but there's brain activity, and we can. It's it's sort of a pause that thing brain. almost, um, where like he was the right kind of fucked up, where they're yeah. like he fits into the program's you know requirements exactly. So. He is like he's starting to figure out like so if, yeah I'm gonna disconnect the bomb I'm gonna do some things 
to figure out. Meanwhile, he also is like, um, he, uh, he like never got to talk to his dad. His dad and him had a fight before he went to Iraq. Um, or sorry, Afghanistan or whatever and died. And so like, he has that still, like, I never got a chance to tell my dad, I'm sorry. Uh, now worth, I kind of said this, he is going into the body of this different person who has a whole different life where he's friends with Michelle Monaghan, Michelle Monaghan and him are just friends. Uh, it's clear that, uh, Michelle Monaghan's like, I kind of have a little bit of crush on him, but we're going to talk about our dating life. They're like, um, they're like, uh, I don't want to say work husband and wife, but like, I don't know, train husband and wife. They ride the train, they're friends. I'm unclear how much of their relationship extends outside of the train ride they take together every day, but whatever. Um... So he figures out, he figures out it's this guy. Um, again, it really isn't like he has a couple of clues and he follows this guy off of the bus um, or sorry, the train. And he is that person gives this whole like I need to blow up America, finds the dirty bomb and stuff like that. Uh, and this is the end of the second act. Like he gives that information. They arrest him. Um, and his thing is like, great. I serve my country twice now. Uh, they try to give him the whole shit about like most soldiers would like to continue serving. And I, I really like that line about with all due respect, I think, you know, as a soldier to Vera Farmiga, that you would that most soldiers would say that one life to give to your country is more than enough. <laughs> uh, great. <laughs> good line. line. Good line. Uh, noted, not written by Duncan Jones. It's also one of those lines hinting at a much darker much more bleak sort of sci-fi dystopia thriller that this movie only sort of flirts with. It's there in the seams, which is why doing it's this episode is stakes, ultimately but fun. It's but it's on. yeah, it is. It's there for like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna show you a good slam bang ninety minute action thriller, like the type of movie we they literally don't make anymore. Like they didn't make them in two thousand eleven. They don't make them now. Um, and but we're gonna we're gonna leave you with some things to discuss on a podcast nine years later, ten years later, I guess, based on when you're hearing this. Um. So anyway, so he's like, hey, I want one more thing. I think you're wrong. I because he he gives this whole thing like I called your office and I left you a message. You go and and Jeffrey writes like you left that version of me in this eight minute bubble universe a message. Um. But as Jeffrey Wright is calling and, like, taking congratulations from the president or the general or whoever the fuck knows, Jake Gyllenhaal's like, hey, like, to verify me, soldier to soldier, like, you promised me you'd kill me, but let me have one more shot at saving these people. And I think verifying is like, sure, we're going to let him die. He served his country twice. Um, gave his life for his country twice. I'm going to give him his eight minutes, right? And... um so the eight minutes I really, really love and I want to spend a little time discussing, but essentially he gives all these people that he's now met on the train and unknown amount of times like he he like makes all their days a little bit better. Like and I and I there's part of him that thinks he's going to die, I think, after the eight minutes um, and he's not sure. But he's like in, in my in my final moments, instead of like saving a terrorism plot or something like that or some action hero stuff, I'm going to make everyone's day a little brighter. I'm going to call uh, my dad. I'm going to be this other person who's giving my message because my dad believes I'm dead and I don't exist in my body anymore. Uh, I mean, I like it's a little bit sometimes to try like I'm going to bet this comedian to make everyone on the pl on the train laugh. And the fact that it works is just effective to both the performances and the and how much they dwell on certain moments. But ultimately, like that's this thing. Like I'm going to spend the eight minutes giving these people a little bit of a better day, uh, which is 
Nice. Um, at the end, he finally kisses Michelle Monaghan. Like, oh, here's the last thing I want to do if I had seconds to live. And uh, the movie kind of pauses for a sack as, as, the, as he shuts down in our world, only to start back up again. And he'd also had written an email and essentially in the denouncement. So he's with Michelle Monaghan. They're kind of dating now. They go and visit the bean. They see the reflection of themselves with no tourists and the – the uh, what it's saying is that like you know he's like looking at himself through a different lens uh, in a different reality essentially. Uh, the first time I saw this movie, I thought that the time time travel works. Like they were wrong. Vera Farmiga the next day gets a note that says, "Here's what to, what would have happened today. Here's this terrorist guy that I arrested um, and left a message." Uh, left a message for you about that he I did it in his voice you have this soldier in your custody please do not let this program go forward you're 100% wrong on what the source code does yeah kill it yep and I thought I really quick I thought that meant that um, he was traveling back in time he could save those people he did save those people and as I watched it again, there's a clearer line that I kind of missed the first time where he says, you thought you were creating a pocket universe. You're not. You're creating an entire universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he has figured out that um, that he can live again in the body of this person, potentially dating this Michelle Monaghan person, um, because he doesn't have to die. He can essentially take this person's place. And uh, and live out their life because he has created an entirely new quantum reality where he did stop the train from exploding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I, <clears throat> you and I were texting last night about this movie, and I at first I was like, oh, we're going to be in disagreement about what the ending means. That's kind of interesting. Um, and I think we ended up in the same place. There might be. It's more so like. And I, I drew out a little diagram and like I'll, I'll try in a little bit to explain how I, my, I picture this whole system. But like, yeah, like Aaron was like, it's not a time travel movie. I was like, but he's traveling to another timeline. So it is in a sense a time travel movie. It's just <laughs> not the way people view time travel. So Usually you view it as like I'm going back on the timeline that I'm in. It, we'll get to it. But yeah, like it's funny that Aaron and I were actually agreeing, but we were like using different language and it took us like five minutes to figure out. I was like, oh, we're talking about the same thing. It's just that there's not good language for multiple Well, unless you're a Star Trek fan and I know we're doing this on our side cast, but like Star Trek The Next Generation has so many episodes and like even the Star Trek Encyclopedia had a whole appendix about all the different alternate universes that were created. So in Star Trek lore – um, it kind of means that, like, when you time travel, you don't – it's the Back to the Future rules, right? Like, you don't – I mean, it depends on a little bit on the movie and the, what they're trying to go for. But in Next Generation, a lot of times when they when that would happen, it wasn't always that you um, you went back in time. is that you create a alternate universe that occurs, right? Like there is hypothetically a universe that still exists along the path that it was going before the time travel existed. And now by changing it, you haven't changed it. You've basically made a splintering path. It's the, it's the doc Brown writing on the chalkboard in back to future two, where he's like, here's where we're going. He went back into this. Now we've diverged off into this alternate 1985. And 
Um, in that like universe, hypothetically, those two timelines both exist concurrently. It's just a matter of like you can't jump from that one without going back to the source. And there's a whole episode of Next Generation called Parallels where you find out the amount of pocket – like. Uh, alternate universes that exist when they all start converging into the same universe at the same time. So you end up having like thousands of enterprise, like one where it's as simple as like um, uh, Worf's uniform is slightly different. One where Worf Picard did get shirt? Uh, yeah, Picard did get killed by the Borg and Rikers in charge and the Borg of t- like like that level of disparity between high and low. So I think like I'm not trying to say like I have a I like I have a language to talk about it, but like that concept, like once I kind of figured out that's what they were doing this time around, and I must have missed that line. For me, it was like, oh, I get it. Yeah, they're they're doing the multiverse. Like every time they enacted the source code, they create a new quantum reality, and he's been jumping to those, not traveling back into this like simulation. Got it. Like which I know is um, maybe saying like, oh, I get it. It's one of those Star Trek parallels things, but. That was my uh, language that I interpreted it through. Think of it as a bunch of different save states. Every save state is legitimate. Yeah, you can go back to any of those save states at any point. But um, you can't jump from save state to save state. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So use video game language. Yes. So came out in 2011. It is a deeply post-Iraq war movie. We discussed this with the crazies briefly. Um, yeah. but the way it is very interesting to view movies that came out, uh, right after 9-11 versus movie that came out three years, six years, nine years after 9-11, um, because those movies as time went on and the public start, the public's opinion of the war started to change and their sympathies started to change, how you would engage with a character who's a soldier needed to change. Um, the fact that he died in the war. And you don't actually know of him like committing any any horrific crimes is very important. That's part of the sympathetic thing. Uh, even he's like, shit, I died in the war. I don't want to feel like dying again. Like, I, I feel like I've given enough to this fucking country. Like that attitude is deeply a post, uh, you know, war on terror, post Iraq war tide turning kind of thing. Um, and uh, the fact that the movie is deeply cynical about what our intelligence community is up to behind the, you know, deep in the recesses of the Pentagon, deep in the, I mean, I guess, I guess this, this particular crew is at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, but um, deep in the, in the, the, the substrata of um, our intelligence community, what is going on under there? And that actually went two directions. One, was a pretty healthy direction. I think it brought a lot of people to the 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 assertion that um, the surveillance state in this country is deeply diseased, and that the Patriot Act was a horrific mistake, and we handed over way too much power to uh, the federal government, and even fucking like Obama um, abused that horrifically, um, and used drone warfare to kill a U.S. citizen. Um, but I don't feel like getting into that right now. But um, and then Trump continued to abuse the surveillance state in an even greater manner. It's almost like, I'm just going to throw this out, the idea of uh, a bunch of new laws that sometimes supersede the Constitution and, and the idea of like personal liberty um, uh, to fight endless wars with countries for 
uh, personal wealth and vendettas is bad. Yeah, yeah, it's it's almost it has like an that, effect on. Society. I would never say that because I'm not an un-American like you. Um, you support the troops. I get it. I don't support the troops. <laughs> Except this one. Except for this I one. Like I like this support the troop. troop. This one troop. This film is about uh, a deep, cynical sort of response to the surveillance state. Um, actually, like, set off two directions. Like, one is, like, that there's now a, a solid base of Republican voters that are against the war on terror, but also believe there's some sort of CIA deep state. Um, and then there's a bunch of leftists who said, no. It's not a Jewish cabal uh, of uh, bankers and the CIA forming this like celebrity coalition to undermine American values. Like it's it's just a group of people whose stated goal is uh, protecting the nation and abuse that goal. In this movie, it's taking surveillance state to an entirely other level. The idea that they can use quantum mechanics to actually like capture a moment in reality at the expense, at the exploitation of a captive prisoner. And that captive prisoner happens to be a somebody who died for, you know, the country. Um, the, the military community uh, exploiting their own labor. Um, and, it, like, that's where the movie gets kind of interesting in that, like, it's dropping these little pebbles of ideas, but it's an 89-minute movie. So it drops that little idea. It's almost like a Corman movie where it, like, drops that idea and then just fucking moves on to the next idea. And that's why I think this movie is, like, great to talk about because it's, we're not just saying like hey this is a really efficient thriller it gets the job done we're saying this is a movie with like a lot of like deep and thoughtful ideas that yeah. that drops them and they're all worth kind of talking about and screwing around with um, ultimately it is just a kick-ass thriller that broke through on mainstream audiences and made a yep. bunch of money it works as a mainstream thriller it has a happy ending um, and well once you start digging, it becomes a somewhat problematic ending, but it has a ostensibly happy ending. I mean, yeah, it's uh, we'll get there. It's such a clip that it can almost like launder these these political ideas to you without you realizing it. This is the war on terror. This is how people feel about the war on terror. And how, and how do we get like a modernized idea and, and, and modernized theming about the war on terror into our 90 minute little time travel thriller? Yeah. And I it does work because like Jeffrey Wright, who's I mean, playing a Jeffrey Wright type, um, he really found a niche uh, and he's good at it. And I want to see Jeffrey Wright as a janitor just once. Like no yeah, deeper sure exists. No deeper machinations. No, no grand plots. He's not the uh, puppet master all along. Just Jeffrey Wright being like, well, I'm going to pour some uh, sawdust on this kid's vomit and then I'm going to go home and have two Miller High Lifes. And then I'm probably going to, I don't know, watch Jay Leno and go to bed. <laughs> I mean, I think the first time I like remember Jeffrey Wright in a movie, and I'm sure there's other examples, but the one that like stood out to me is him playing Felix Leiter in, uh, in Casino Royale. Which is, like, so funny that, like, one of his bigger breakout roles was, like, him playing the shitty, incompetent American James Bond, who's, like, nice, but, like, he's like, oh, yeah, no, I don't know how to play poker. Here's all my chips. Help me out, dude. (laughs) Um, And then, like, at some point, that turned into, what if you're an eccentric, evil scientist? Hold on. With some some sci-fi leanings, like he's he, I don't think he's ever like a scientist 
who like uses current day technology in his evil machinations. It's always future technology. It's a niche. It's working for him. Uh, even when the movies and the TV shows apparently get really bad. Um, keep doing it because you are a superstar at it. I love you, Jeffrey Wright. But I, I think that, that his character is the perfect like example of that, right? Which is it, it, it always has been so frustrating like someone who was very like politically active during like the Iraq war and like being against the Iraq war was like my, my big, like, Oh fuck these Republicans. Like, and I've talked about that in other podcasts. I don't need to get into it now, but, um, I, um, it was so frustrating that idea of like how prevalent that idea of not supporting the troops was and you're just against the troops and you're against America. It's like actually like not wanting my friends who are troops. Like I'm, I'm 20. So I have friends that are in, that are the troops. I, I could have been a troop right now to die in the war. I've already had friends that have died. I, I almost fell for the marketing line that like, Hey, do you want us to pay for your college? And we'll also like we'll straighten out. Yeah, it sounds it sounds good. Like two well, weekend, whatever it is, one weekend a month, one, two weeks a year. You're oh, like, I was going to sign up for college Marines and just go away yeah. for a few years and then come oh. back and then do college. I was like, I'm not ready for college. I'm taking on all this yeah. debt right now. My brain is too scattered, and they really like the the marketing folks uh, for the the military. Like, know that like when you're 18, 19, you're like being thrust into the adult world, and even yeah. when you're even when you're going to actual college, you're like not quite in that bubble. Like it's always the adult world is always hanging over your head, which I guess fits, too, because like um, the idea that Jake Gyllenhaal's character may have signed up for this is like the perfect like, oh, yeah, they, they tell you all the positives and stuff like that. And then they don't tell you, by the way, when you come back, you won't have health care and and we're not going to pay for your whole like there's all these like um weird like uh it's like it's like almost like buying a timeshare which should not be (laughs) like there should not be as many negative loopholes as there are for joining the military for the country that you live in as there are for like but like uh too bad should have read the fine print you dumb fucking 17 year old it's not great but like that is like the the amount of people that like you couldn't even have an argument about the iraq war because um the Carl Rove Lee Atwater thing was like just yeah if we're not supporting the troops the best way is to attack your your enemy quote unquote enemy's uh, strengths so they are supporting the troops by not wanting to send them off into a dumb fucking war to get revenge for your dad or whatever else or to uh, you know win one for the team or to steal oil or whatever the fuck build a Halliburton pipeline and instead it was like so much of like you don't support the troops you don't support the troops and that still goes on like the same people these same like Trumpies who are now like against the Iraq war still pull out the support our troops bullshit it's like what what it's it's amazing the level of like um, amnesia convenient amnesia they can have on like just a completely bifurcated political thinking that makes no sense but like jeffrey wright's the perfect example of that right he's designed this program he tells jake gyllenhaal these nice things and then and at the end of the day jake gyllenhaal who did these good things for program just wants to die and his thing is like die he's our he's our property now like he doesn't respect the troops he doesn't care about the troops like he's building a program designed to utilize troops and at the end of the day the person in power could not fucking care less about them and when vera Ferminga's character is like 
hey, like, let's let this, let's support the troops. Like, like she's in just say that exactly. That would be a little bit too on the nose, but she's like, uh, support, like, this is supporting. Like, he did the thing. We promised him, like, this is his reward. This is, he, this like, is the movie laundering pro like liberal ideas into an action thriller because that is a yeah that's a terry schiavo pro-choice kind of like yeah uh, d- decision like that 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 um the decision to carry on a life is not that of uh government bureaucrats it's the yeah it, it is actually the decision of those in those that are being affected in their families yeah but instead what does he say to her he says Oh, what? How do we even know if any of these husbands are going to work? As far as he's the only one that works so far. Um, we're going to wipe his memory. We're going to even take away this, like, his little bit of, like, dignity and respect and this little victory that he earned. And then when she, like, bulks at that, he's like, what, you want more terrorist attacks to happen? Think of how many people would have died today. It's that idea of, like, supporting this person's humanity and not treating them like a uh, like a a piece of property for the military to use as they please is being thrown in her face is like again like oh do you want more Americans to die like on nine eleven like so yeah just give in to our fit our fascism and we'll keep you safe and I think that's why like just the concept of fascism is um. I don't know if you've read, I think it's Jason Stanley's book, How Fascism Works. If not, I would read it to anyone listening. It's like, uh, I listened to it in an audiobook, so it's six hours worth of reading um, based on based on audiobook length. But it, it like it it really goes into it in a way that I haven't heard expressed so like clearly and like but you can see why it, those ideas are so easy to take root. I mean, look around us, but also just like, because it is like the, what is, Vera Firminger doesn't know what to say. Like, she doesn't want more people to die. Like, that state, like, she she doesn't want inno- hypothetical innocent people to die because she tried to give this person, like, a semblance of support and dignity. But on the flip side, she feels like she has to commit an immoral act in order to prevent hypothetical people. And so you realize like how like if if you're not like if you don't understand what's going on and you can't like and even mounting a campaign against that um, because it's a nuanced issue that like requires discussion like as opposed to just simple like support the troops stop terrorism war on terror and it's like oh well I guess you win because me talking about like yes the 911 hijackers were were bad but let's talk talk about America's history of interventionism and murder in the Middle East and like how we got here and what the right response is. like no it's war on terror <laughs> like can't kill that thank you support the troops like you realize how difficult that is to combat and this really does like for yeah for a simple action thriller this movie has a lot of interesting things to uh to say it it, you know peter you you talk about how much you one of the things you like about star trek is that idea of like the allegory of like um talking about a complex issue in like a futuristic scenario um a little morality place this is that this is that in movie form I think that's that. But let me get to my primary issue with the movie. Sorry. Which one? I have two. Okay. So, do you remember in Interstellar and in 
Event Horizon and in pretty much any space movie where they use wormholes, um, where they fold over the piece of paper and they say, well, going from here to here takes fucking forever. But if you bend space and time, you can get there, you know, instantaneously. Like that sort of elegant metaphor um, by taking a piece of paper, folding it over. Um, and all of a sudden the yeah. audience is like, oh, okay. So like, you're not going, you're not, even if they don't understand the, concept, I have folded before. Yeah. I get it. They movie. at least get the concept that they're not just traveling like through, um, they're not just, they're not just traveling really fast. Like a car would travel along a highway. They're traveling. If the highway could bend backwards through time and the whole universe yeah. could bend backwards through time. Um, this movie desperately, desperately needs five to ten minutes more time or one minute of just them finding the right metaphor for the timelines. Because do you think they should have used the Back to the Future 2 one that I did? Maybe save states is also pretty good, but like, I, you know, at that point, I think a lot of people would have played video games, but maybe like, I, I don't know if people know what save states are, because by then... I think uh, in 2011, save states were way more prevalent than they are in 2021. They were more prevalent, but 360 started using auto saves in like 2008 or whatever, so... Like, I don't know, that Mass Effect, that first Mass Effect, if you didn't tier save, you might as well get the fuck out if you ever fuck up anything. That's true, that's true. But yeah, so my point is, I, I think that the... This is good content for all of our listeners yeah. who remember playing tiered save Mass Effect. I, I, I do think it's important, though, like finding an elegant metaphor to explain yeah. sci-fi concepts if... You're trying to be an efficient movie. If you're trying to be Solaris or uh, <laughs> Stalker, um, let's just use Tar Tarkovsky. Um, if you're trying to be Ivan's Childhood, yeah. <laughs> if you're Andrew trying Rublev. to be, if you're not trying to shoot for ultimate efficiency, if you're trying to let yeah. your art really revel in the moment, you can have characters have long conversations where they can sort of elaborate in a sort of intellectual manner how how these sci-fi concepts work. And how they affect you and your humanity. But the problem with this movie is that it has a really expert ending with Jake Gyllenhaal and Michelle Monaghan um, walking to the bean, having their little date. Which, by the way, n literally no Chicago natives on the planet would go to downtown Chicago and <laughs> walk to the bean. Really, mo really, most of my first dates in since back before I was married here in Minneapolis were at the Mall of America. <laughs> it's like first let's spend forty minutes finding a parking spot, and then uh, you ready for Nickelodeon Universe? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, they loved it. I that's why I eventually had to get married to someone that worked next to me. <laughs> It was almost too successful. They got intimidated by how <laughs> successful it was. Uh, you want to go on the SpongeBob ride again? And they're like, this is too much too fast. They're like, are you from here? Kinda. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, the, 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 the idea of them going to the bean on a, on a, on their like true. Well, but don't they just walk is, is crazy, by it? Whatever. The they train. would go to, they would go to a cool, uh, in 2006, they would go to like a cool, like, uh, taco bar in Pilsen or they would go to a fucking Were they, they to is that a Square date though I just got the sense they walked by it on the way from the train with the idea they were going to go on a date but then they went to the bean if you make that turn to the bean you're going to the See, bean that's, 
you know, in the same way that I had a very specific way to understand this movie because I watched too much Star Trek, you knowing that this was a purposeful out of their way walk to, to, to look at the bean is a little bit too specific, I think, for yeah. mainstream audiences. Yeah, it's a little too specific. Uh, and the Millennium Gateway, it, it photographs well. It's really cool, like, in from that perspective. But as a local, it kind of fell flat for me. The fact that she was eating I don't know who's editing great, this episode, but we are going to use spoons, me and the bean somewhere in it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you Good. for the for leaving that that that, that audio note um the fact that she is eating dunkin donuts though on the train totally <laughs> makes sense to though um because uh even though dunkin donuts is obviously a boston thing like for whatever reason like all the of world the big... runs on dustin dustin <laughs> duncan uh, uh chicago runs on duncan because chicago is with an america so we just got Dunkin's like two years ago in Minneapolis. I, I, I love Dunkin'. I grew up. We with were them. a Krispy Kreme town. I they ran our family out of Bayside. <laughs> <laughs> I would say Krispy Kreme uh, makes a better standard glazed donut than Dunkin' does. However, Krispy I think Krispy Kreme's are was hot garbage. Uh, I think it's all. I actually think Krispy Kreme sucks. That's uh, my take. And, and Dunkin' makes really good cakes donuts. Just a. Just, yeah. a, just the, the double. I'm glad Duncan great. won that war. Yeah, I, I will say it. It's a respectable. It's a respectable uh, franchise. Uh, they're one of the few corporations that I've not soured on. The fact that she's eating Duncan on the train. This is definitely something we need to talk about right now, as opposed to the time travel shit. Given <laughs> the, the, the how late in the episode we, we are. About the yeah, we, we talked about the time travel shit. There is a Dunkin' Donuts in all the major stations at Union Station. At like, uh, if you go to like Block Thirty Seven, where like the, the the blue line and the red line converge, like there's there's a multiple Dunkins I think in there. Like the the idea that you just be like, oh, I'm gonna grab something from Dunkin' right there, like that. That makes sense. That's actually weirdly more Chicago. Well, I think I think that, you know, little known fact, Duncan Jones is from Chicago. Yeah, America runs on Duncan. <laughs> do you think that's the thing is because obviously he's not from Chicago. Yeah. Uh, do you think like he's like heard the slogan and was like, well, better put Duncan in and just got super lucky. Do you think the directors pick out what food people are eating in each scene? That's all they do. What else? That's they all do? they do. They're mostly product placement. <laughs> do, direct, do directors do other things other than picking which uh, coffee cup uh, Edward Norton is drinking in a scene? Uh, no, I my understanding of directors is they primarily choose which donut brands people are eating and what uh, baseball caps Ben Affleck wears. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you think that's too specific of a reference for our audience? Like right in no, that's, are you talking about the David Fincher thing with Ben Affleck? Yeah, where the movie shut down for four days because he wouldn't wear an he wanted to wear a fucking Boston Red Sox hat instead of a Yankees cap, and he's like, "You live in New York. The whole point of this movie is you're a New Yorker. I'm wearing the Red Sox hat." So they like shut the movie shut down for four days, and he ended up wearing uh, after like lawyers got involved, and he ended up wearing a New York Mets hat. That was the compromise. Yeah. Four days. The The audio commentary is so funny because Fincher is clearly not happy about it still. And he's like, he describes what happened is like, and keeps referencing like, well, you know, in that David Fincher, if you ever listen to a David Fincher commentary, he has a very soothing voice and just describes things very methodically, methodically and like dispassionately. So him, look up that clip on YouTube of him being like, well, as you know, Ben Affleck is a very unprofessional actor. <laughs> like he keeps calling unprofessional while just like you almost think it's a bit until you found out find out that that 
really happened and oh, fincher was furious. yeah you think you, yeah yeah yeah. And, and like fincher making it a hilarious moment on the commentary track is like at first you're like haha that's really cute that they're like balancing off each other but i bet that they wanted to choke each other to death for about 48 hours no ben affleck's not on that commentary it's just fincher yeah and and so like the timeline that i was working with or the timeline image i was working with is that there's a primary timeline and then he keeps jumping off of the pri- the primary timeline, the alpha timeline, onto a beta timeline and a delta timeline and an epsilon timeline. And all of these yeah. kind of timelines are all uh, eight minutes long, the eight minute loops, uh, which, by the way, is the movie. Are those loops actually eight minutes? Because I feel like. No, I don't care about shorter than eight minutes. I feel like the last loop has got to be 16 minutes. <laughs> well, I th- again, what's interesting is that, like, if the loop worked the way that Jeffrey Wright described when the train blew up, but Jake Gyllenhaal wasn't on it, he would leave, right? Because what Jeffrey Wright thinks he's created is an eight-minute universe. A little pocket. That's when Jake Gyllenhaal realizes, hey, wait, I continue to exist when the train goes and all these other things out. Like, if you're creating a pocket universe, why would, like, I be able to call it? Like, why would all these other things be existing at the same time? So that's where he realizes that he's creating a save state um, as where he can go back and create a new branching path. That doesn't affect the other paths, but is a reality that will continue on and one where he can actually save people, even if it's not the same people technically from the prime universe where um, where there goes. But it's also like a level of cruelty, again, if you digest it, that like, let's say he let's say he went through the loop 20 times, right? Uh, instead of saving lives, Jeffrey Wright actually created a universe where those all were – all those people existed on the train 20 times and blew up to their deaths. Like, in, in a weird way, he's actually creating more death and destruction. Um, the two things that don't work for me in the movie, though, are uh, – and I, I know they don't sync the movie, but we talked a lot on Groundhog Day, Peter, about um, the impossibility of Andy McDowell's role – and how it's amazing that it succeeds despite itself. But that was under the scenario of her having to essentially be flawless and perfect and make the main character fall in love with her existing in one day. And the way that's accomplished is it's it's a full day with a lot of permutations. You also get to see her before that particular day. And you can see why – and Annie McDowell's so good at it. You can see why uh, – she can exist uh, as someone who Bill Murray's character would fall in love with. And even though it definitely can feel still a little bit like, okay, well, you just did the whole like someone with no agency, perfect, perfect girl type thing. Mm-hmm. It, it it actually – the Groundhog Day is so good, it rises above most of that. This movie has a couple problems. One, we meet Michelle Monaghan for eight minutes. Every time, which is not enough time for us to get to know her as a character or get to know all the different permutations. And in almost all the permutations, she just is almost like uh, doe-eyed in love with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's facsimile. So she's Um, she's already in the love state, which makes sense in terms of efficiency. He has to, like, fall in love with her for these two sort of, you know. uh, And because they're just friends, he needs to. Yeah, yeah. 
like Michelle Monaghan's good. She she's she's someone who I think we failed as. Um, I wrote down we have failed Michelle Monaghan in my notes. Oh my god, Peter, can I send it to you? I wrote the exact same thing down. <laughs> let, me, let me take a picture. Let me let me let me screenshot my notes here. But it's true. Like she just is in it. She's a she's a great actress who almost always is in completely thankless roles. <clears throat> Mission Impossible movies. Um, Excuse me. Ethan Hunt always has a lady to go home to. Red light! When the movie needs... Green light! Some weird thing to happen in the last four minutes. <laughs> She's not even in that movie, but I want to do the first Mission Impossible movie because, A, I think it's one of the best ones. It's a really good movie. I love it quite it's a bit. It's a diploma. But I also want to just yell red light, green light in Tom Cruise's voice as many times as possible during that episode. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. It almost sounded like you were doing a Tom Waits thing. You had a little bit of red light. You had a little grog in your grog. In well, your I'm tired. <laughs> so it was, it was nice. It was nice. At least, at least I'll do a Tom. I, I, I'm, I'm, I. Uh, but yeah, I'm quite a fan of Michelle Monaghan. I'm, I'm yep. a Mana fan. Um, and <laughs> Got she, it. And she, uh, but yeah, she is. She is so goddamn charming in, in all of these movies. And yeah, why they cast her in it, right? Like we need someone the audience is going to fall in love with over nothing. She just, she just gets get uh, Michelle. We, we talked about Chris, uh, Kristen Malati last time, and I don't think that they've had you know yeah. identical careers, but I, I feel like they've at least had the similar thing where like they both have suffered uh, as the thirty-something-year-old woman for you know twenty-something years, which is. Um, Oh, you get to be the big old fucking bummer when the man comes home uh, after a long day of solving crimes. Or uh, you get to be the big old fucking bummer um, that, like, gets murdered uh, at some point in the movie so the man can be sad. And, like, Michelle Monaghan was in Detective. There was all this build up to, like... What does her what's her stake in this grand mystery? What's her stake? And it turns out her stake was to um be sad and uh distract us from the main mystery because Nick P- Pizzolito or whatever his name is um had absolutely no fucking idea to what to do with the women characters in that show. Man, I got to tell you, I haven't seen all these movies she's in, but I pulled up her filmography and we kind of talked about like her how great she is in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and how bad the movie serves her in a lot of different capacities. It's, it's not a great movie in retrospect, but she is so charming in it. But like her the way that the movie treats her character specifically i think when we did the episode we called out to the worst part of a pretty good movie at the very least uh, but looking at this filmography like it's all that shit like i do date i think she's robert downey jr's girlfriend in that like uh heartbreak kid which is the shitty uh fairly brothers remake of the elaine may movie um uh, and she plays uh the person that Ben Seller leaves his wife over. Um, all the, like, yeah, like, Pixels. I assume she was, like, fucking Kevin James or Adam Sandler's. The wife that wags the finger. I do yeah, not have to look she... this up on Wikipedia. She is the wife who wags the finger and says, are you all fighting Pac-Man? Or whatever the fuck the movie's about. Uh, she. It looks like she will be in uh, Zoe Lister-Jones' remake of The Craft. Which may be the best part she ever has. Or she's uh, the mom going, are you guys doing the craft? Are you guys crafting? It doesn't it doesn't bode well that she is. Oh, yeah, she's definitely not part of the craft because she is eighth build. She's someone's mom. 
she is someone's mom. Yeah, we done did her dirty. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, uh, but did done dirty. <laughs> but yeah, she. I mean, she's great in this movie. I think the love story in general is weirdly satisfying when his like he thinks his universe is ending and he gets a kiss in like in a vacuum, not thinking about all the uh, existential and quantum uh, issues that it raises. Yes. Um, but, like, that part's satisfying, and I get, like, you want a different th- third act, but I can't help but think, like, throw away the love story, she's just a friend, and, like, their moment of connection is him calling his dad, which is already a pretty affecting moment. Um, and that's it. Or they're already, ma- like, make them already married. Like, I, and then he kind of fall- – like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what's grosser or not grosser because the other part that doesn't work for me really well in this movie is, like, when you leave the movie and go, oh, so that Sean guy died every time, no matter what. And his consciousness was pushed out for Jake Gyllenhaal. So the Sean guy essentially went to sleep on the train or, you know, he had a moment of, you know, sort of disassociation on the train. And that moment of disassociation led to him literally disassociating from his body (laughs) and that his consciousness does not exist anymore. Yeah, or is like, in some sort of weird John Malkovich or yeah. uh, the, the 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 deep below or whatever from Get Out state where he's just buried down below as Jake Gyllenhaal alpha males his consciousness <laughs> in a town yeah. deeper and that the Sean guy was yearning for Michelle Monaghan the whole time and or maybe not maybe Sean was like gay and this Sean is a real any, like yeah. Could have been anything. Like we don't, we don't know. We know that Michelle Monaghan's kind of in love with him, and he's never made a move. Like people aren't stupid. If he was interested, like he 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 probably you know he might have had previous windows. It's you know it's frankly more unlikely that he's interested. And this was the one moment when he was interested and decided that, you know, I'm going to consummate this on the train. Then it is that uh, he just wasn't interested. That's way more. Yeah, also could be just not interested. Yes. But but now Jake Gyllenhaal is using his body in ways that he very much never intended it. Uh, It's it's a good choice. He has to, to, you know, he's like, uh, can the can the great black loam of the down (laughs) below take me down for like, uh, I don't know. What do you got, Jake? 25 minutes? <laughs> I think it's called The Sunken Place. The sunken I don't place. think it's called what do The they Dark call it Below. In, what do they call it in Malkovich? Um, I think it's just being in John Malkovich. Like, and you get subsumed and, like, you you, you, you do not exist in your Oh, I don't, I don't remember. Maybe it's The Dark Place. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. The, the, yeah, the Sunken Place. Like, he gets, <laughs> he gets sucked down to The Sunken Place. Poor Sean. But it, that's the thing that I saw for It's years. a good move of this movie that they never show Sean existing for a millisecond. Sean like, gets to be in the mirror reflection and the reflection of the beam. And that's it. Like, they don't have a point where, like, Sean is sitting there and, like, he does a – like, even at the beginning of the movie and then that indicates that Jake Gyllenhaal has entered the, the scene. Like, that's good. However, uh, everything about it is gross and creepy in the worst possible way. And also, not just to Sean. Like, Michelle Monaghan is, like, not – now dating the person that she's gotten to know she's dating a, uh, uh, an Iraq war veteran who uh, may may need some support for I mean he died twice many times 
I mean, he may need a level of support that she's not ready or doesn't – like not ready or not even understanding that she's entering into a relationship with someone who has been through a secret government death experiment. Also – She thinks she's dating a teacher that they hang out on the train. Like, Also, they have no mutual not history great. anymore. Like is he going to no. be – what's his teaching ability going to be like as somebody who uh, has died and died and died again? Like that – there, there's a lot of questions raised by the romantic ending in this movie that are deep, yeah. that are that are satisfied by um, you them have, being charming together, them being charming together, and Jake Gyllenhaal having a perfect face that you just want to just <laughs> fucking smooch. You just want to put a big old smooch on that. Well, face. Jake Gyllenhaal uh, has a perfect face. Sean does. I mean, he's got an okay face. He doesn't have a uh, Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal face. I think one thing we talked a lot about when it came to Groundhog Day was that, like, the movie de- doesn't necessarily need you or want you to scrutinize the nature of his relationship with Rita, with Phil's relationship with Rita. But you can make a case that, like, as long as Phil remains on the trajectory that he does at the end of the movie, they actually will probably have an okay relationship. Like, he's changed. He's gotten to know her. She's going to continue to get to know him, As again, as long as he kind of matches the person he was at the end of that movie. There's a case that she – like, the attraction that they – had through his uh, changed behavior will continue to hold up. I think our debate in that movie was less about whether their relationship was realistic is but or 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 um, stands up to scrutiny under the circumstances, but more whether how long Phil maintains um, his changed behavior post um, post not reliving the same day over and over again. And I think uh, you know just last week with Palm Spring brings like because their characters were both reliving the same day it was a different scenario but that their relationship held up to a level of scrutiny you never know how long any relationship in real life is gonna last even if they're perfect for each other in the moment but like it holds up to the idea of like they will last a certain amount of time maybe forever but it feels genuine between the two of them this one, the movie, not only does it not hold up to you in the slightest bit of scrutiny, it is almost asking you, like, don't think – just don't think about it. Like, Please, they got the kiss. They don't – like, don't – don't analyze they are, it. They are shaking a, a flat hand across their neck yeah. right now. Yeah, he's pretty. She's pretty. They kiss. That's a really happy thing that happens when two pretty people kiss and decide to go on dates. They're both very yeah. So like that. That is where the movie. The movie is not designed for it to hold up to scrutiny. Um, It wouldn't hold up to scrutiny about like if they literally if if he was playing Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, if he existed as Jake Gyllenhaal in that scene, not the actor, but, like, his character in the movie, instead of existing as a different person in the brain that he destroyed upon contact. Like, this movie is, like, just, just, just shut up. Just shut up. Just go. Iraq War? War on Terror? Oh, the relationship. Yeah, they're two pretty people. They kiss. Shut up. Move on. <laughs> Don't talk about it. Shut up. Shut up. So, like, I... So, I, so yeah, the, the thing that the movie wants me very actively to not analyze because any analyzing of it would make it seem like it didn't work, didn't work for me. I Yeah. Like, 
I, I think that the movie probably could have used another 10 minutes to figure out a way around the Sean problem and also come up with a more. I mean, make them friends. That, that's it. Make them friends or make him like, don't make it be a weird like crush that you only are seeing one side of and then a new person react to that's that he didn't earn that crush in any capacity. Or, or we put you back in. Wait, why does it have to be an Iraq war veteran? I mean, I know that disassociation is like part of the, the whole deal, but like. If you want to make the ending work, you make it, hey, you died in that explosion. You managed to survive long enough uh, for us to put you in this program. We know you were on shore leave or whatever they call it. You were on leave from the from you were you were back home. And that way, him and Michelle Monaghan have a background. He still has the alien um, that alienation thing where he's like, doesn't know his body, doesn't know all that because they brainwiped him. His his quote unquote first run that we see in the movie. We don't know if that's the fiftieth run. Like yeah. they might have been running that shit. I mean, it, well, I guess it couldn't be the fiftieth. Well, it had to have been that day. Though, it had right? to been that so, day. Like, so that could have been the thirtieth run or whatever, right? Like yeah. it's whatever whatever amount of eight minutes they could have. Uh, we just yeah, well, they and the eight minutes seems to take place in real time. So those are the two things we know for sure. Yeah, unless the eight minutes actually takes place in a in a, in, in seconds, in which case, um, she, yeah, but that she's could watching that clock for reset. So remember yeah. that's existing in. Or she's doing a you know a, a relativity sort of adjustment. But anyways, my point here: uh, why not just make him it getting into his own body? And I know you avoid you you don't get to have that cool moment where he looks in the mirror and there's a different face there. But ultimately, I don't think that that comes to anything. The fact that he's a teacher, the fact that yeah. he, the fact that he's a teacher, the fact that he's in someone else's body, like that adds to a creepy sense of mystery in the first thirty minutes. But at the great cost, that at the end of the movie, if you want to have this happy ending, you get, well, they both can't stay. You can't have a happy ending, and, and you can't have a happy ending and have him steal someone's body. Like you gotta, you gotta give up one of them. Well, and the problem is, yeah, the scenario that you're describing. The problem is, why would Michelle Monaghan fall in love with him in eight minutes? It's like, because he is it, taking the time to reappreciate the loop. In the loop, he's he's not taking her for granted anymore. He's starting to remember. That but I'm saying, like, if this was a new character that Michelle Monaghan just met, um, it wouldn't make any. It wouldn't make any sense that she living eight minutes of this would would leave with like, let's go. I mean, I guess maybe like, hey, I know we, we just met, but we just had a weird day. Let's go. Yeah, it's it just doesn't Her deciding it, that that she loves the person that had put in the groundwork and had like spent time developing a relationship with her is uh, a sweeter feeling than her decide if you're going to make this a romance movie at all where he walks off with the girl at the end you can't have him yeah. stealing someone's body and someone's life also and what is yeah, he, what is he going to do after this like is he just going to not be a teacher because like jake gyllenhaal's character colonel Coulter stevens isn't a teacher like that doesn't make any fucking sense well you just realize because there's that part where he goes there's a there's one of the loops where he's like i know you think i'm your friend sean i'm not i'm this other person and help me and she listens she helps and i she think also thinks he's having a disassociative episode true but that's the problem is like even that like i'm going to tell you the truth like even if at the end of that it's exciting the the timeline that that continues on where michelle monahan doesn't die he's like hey what a crazy train ride look can we go grab a drink and i'll tell you more about it like that does that also doesn't work because in a little bit you can be like okay 
when's my friend that I'm in love with, Sean, coming back? Yeah. Did you kill? Like, there's just, there's nowhere around this that works. And if you want the happy ending, there's no way around it that works. Yeah, you. I think I think you don't need the happy. I think you can have a happy ending that's not based on a love story. And I think trying to do the Groundhog Day love story or some version of it is a huge fucking mistake in this particular movie. And I think uh, both those two components are they don't sink the movie, but again, they hold up to no scrutiny, also- and they want you to to not. Um, to not uh, talk about it. At it could be all, unre- is- it could be unrequited love, or I it could know. be him saying, "I am stealing a man's, you know, the, a moment this man deserved to to kiss this woman that he clearly was interested in. Uh, I'm stealing this moment from that man um, in his final moments, and we'll both- look." And me and Michelle Monaghan, we're doing what we make Duncan Jones so disappointed. <laughs> Because this movie, uh, this part of the movie is definitely not not meant for discussion, Peter. Just shut up You're right, and understand up. that sometimes when two pretty people, one of whom is has possessed another person's body and killed his soul, make googly eyes at each other. It's time for kisses and smooches. They must. They must do smooch. And if they don't do smooch. I, I, it's not going to be a uh, financial success the way this film was. But yeah, I think some movies movie... say death to Smoochie. This movie says uh, yes to Smoochie. This <laughs> says life to Smoochie. My life, life my life smooch. for Smooch. My life for a Smooch. Um, Technically, it... Sean's life. For a <laughs> Sean's life for a Smooch. I'm already in a coma. My life is forfeit. And <laughs> that's my favorite Richard the Third interpretation. My life, Sean's life for a Smooch. <laughs> I notice you've crossed off my kingdom for a smooch. I notice you've crossed off my kingdom for a horse and written Sean's life for a smooch. Yes, I am the screenwriter of Source Code. It's my one move. <laughs> Despite there being almost no competition, is this movie the best Assassin's Creed adaptation? Uh, yeah, guess what though? Ezio doesn't settle down. Or like uh, Dominic in Ezio's body doesn't stay there and have a family. He gets out and then he kills Kristen Bell. Peter, final thoughts on Source Code. <laughs> We've talked some shit. I think it's ultimately a very successful propulsive thriller. However, yeah. and I, however, I think that it needed um, one more central metaphor to connect it all together. And I think yeah. that the movie is uh, compromised by being a big Hollywood movie that has big Hollywood movie script demands. And there's there's a, something we didn't talk about already, which is that the final loop needs to also be an action sequence. Like, he's already pretty... Oh, much- see, I really like that. I like that they, they, they did the action sequence. Let's just have a bunch of, like, um, the idea of someone living out their final eight minutes. I really like that. I hate that I'm, it has I'm to be involved that. with the action at all. I wish it was completely divorced from the action and that like, you know, he solves the crime and, you know, I, the, the crime is already solved or whatever. And then um, he gets to go to his romance thing. But instead, like, I don't know. It's just it's just the fact that, like, we need to go back and, and have one last thriller moment as opposed to, like, spending more time with Michelle Monaghan and him bonding. Um, also, one moment, one part of that that's really funny is in any uh, any other romantic movie, any other romantic movie on Earth, he would be playing a busker or a guitar player or a musician, 
$126 to play music for everyone in the train. But for some reason, this movie's like, everyone on this train needs the comedy styles of Russell Peters. That's romantic to me. Like, Everyone seems so grumpy. Maybe you need this person who was kicked off last comic standing to do some improv on the way to work at nine in the morning. Like, um, and I, look, I, I'm not saying Chicagoans are like New Yorkers, but according to movies, they're pretty goddamn close. I imagine I'm gonna say, the reaction. I, I'm going to say I've met some, this movie is, uh, takes place on a, either an Amtrak or a Metro. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be a Metro train. They go through a fake town called Glenbrook. Um, that the station does not exist. Um, and the train company that they use does not ex- exist. It's like the, consumer it's like ccr it's ccr because i remember thinking oh they're on the creedence clearwater revival train um that doesn't exist in chicago they the the train roughly looks like a metro train i would say um the the (laughs) i i've had some really wonderful lovely public interactions on the metro train where everyone's all in it together mostly before big festivals or big cubs game uh i will say also if somebody got on that train and started doing stand-up everyone would just go back to their fucking ipad and completely ignore that guy (laughs) but if they were playing music people would have like a moment where they had to recognize it it's the studio 60 on the sunset strip problem which is like if you make a show that's specifically about the ground-breaking hilarity of your sketch comedy, and then you decide to show the sketches, um, writing ground-breaking hilarious sketch comedy is tough. Um, it's going to look a little bit silly when your weird like uh, song parody is like held up as like, can this change TV forever? And here, your problem is somewhat similar in that like. Maybe just a few jokes will break everyone out of their bad mood. And so, like, you have someone who's getting up on a train to do stand-up in broad daylight at 8.30 in the morning, which I think we could all agree, like, is uh, on the commute to work in broad daylight that early in the morning is – I'm not a stand-up. I would say that every stand-up would vote that worst possible time to do stand-up. On your way home, makes- you get people because uh, you can drink on the metro. You get people and businessmen like with a, a tall boy Coors Light in their hand, like clapping for you on the way downtown. Absolutely not. Well, exactly. And then the fact that like they have the whole crowd because they have to freeze frame on all of them laughing hysterically. The fact that they try they they only tell like thirty seconds of joke. But, like, I've seen enough stand-up to go, this is not going anywhere funny, ever. Uh, it's like, it, it is almost like, hey, what's the deal? Like, you might as well, it would have been funnier to me as an audience member, Peter, and I would have bought it more. If you would have grabbed the mic and said, what's the deal with airplane food? And just everyone, cuts to everyone laughing and Michelle Monaghan and Jake Gyllenhaal having their moment. Like, then I'd go A-plus, great use of stand-up comedy. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, and like in any other movie, it would be a busker, right? Like it would be someone like playing a beautiful guitar song and like some people ignoring it, some people being enjoying it. And like it would be largely it'd be it'd be one of those sort of emergent moments if someone got on the train and started to preach to, to, to basically preach about uh, how funny they are. Uh, everybody yeah. would throw bricks at them. Can uh, we make it can we make a remake where everything is the exact same except uh, it's a full improv group that. Uh, yeah, it's a flash that, mob. 
that's a yeah, that's on the plane, and he's like, and they're like, hey, get up there, make people laugh, and like twelve people in like uh, primary color t shirts stand up and are like, quick, someone name a job, uh, like, train, uh, 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 train conductor. <laughs> okay, guys, we've heard all week. We hear train suggestions. Let's look out the window. Think of think of something else. Train enjoyer. Not a job. Railroad track, not a job. Train hater. Someone who hates the train. <laughs> uh, white terrorist who wants to reset society. We found him. <laughs> Get him, Jake. Oh, uh, my man. final thoughts on, on this movie are like, I gave this movie five stars after I saw it in 2011. I never bought it or revisited it or kind of plan to revisit it since and i think that's actually like perfect and i don't mean that as an insult i walked out of this movie being like fuck yeah duncan jones two for two this is a one like i'm gonna be talking about this movie at the end of the year it's gonna be on my best of 2011 list like i'm gonna get it when it comes out on blu-ray and i didn't do any of those things and it's because it's not like a star trek into darkness where you walk away like Oh my god, okay, yeah, that was pretty good, alright. And then by the time, like, you drive home, you're like, fuck this, what the, what did this movie try to do to me? Instead, it's just like, it's pleasant, it's a, it's a perfect type of movie they don't make anymore, it's, it's trying to be a good action movie, it has some interesting things to say, uh, its problem is that it has some stuff that it wants you to think about deeply, and some things that it wants you to forget completely, um, but, like, I watched it again, I had a great time with it, um, but like, it's not, it's not going to end up on my favorite time loop movies of all time. Even if it is a fun 90 minute action thriller with some weird repercussions that you can drill into. Um, and kind of like, again, just a little bit of a disappointment that we didn't get that moon, which I also think is good, but flawed and source code wasn't a stepping stone to, masterpiece um duncan jones instead it was a stepping stone to him uh i i don't know whether it's writing or or just kind of losing that potential at least in the short term and and making some movies that i know there's a lot of people that like warcraft i haven't seen warcraft either war warcraft is something that at least i've heard enough defenders of that i would be interested in checking out on a lazy Saturday, but then mute is also just like no one likes that movie. So it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit disappointing that it didn't go further from here and this wasn't a continual stepping stone into bigger budgets and greater movies in the same way like a Villeneuve uh ended up being able to do, but uh it is definitely like you know, it's a it's a time loop movie that is just a it, it's not a horror movie, it's not a mystery, it's not a comedy. It is like we have to solve a crime, and it, it and it uses that kind of Groundhog Day uh, story function in a in an interesting way um, that uh, we we didn't really talk about much in our first incarnation or will for the rest of this one. So yeah. I'm glad we did this one. Can I have one just final message to the yes, final uh, thought? You Jones, haven't done yours. If, you know, if you're out there, like. Uh, you know, Duncan Jones. Um, I hope she sees this, bro. That kind of thing. Um, Mr. Jones, um, put a wiggle in your stride. Loosen up. I believe he'll be all right. Changing clothes. Now he's got ventilated slacks. Bouncing off the walls. 
Mr. Jones is back. So I feel like that would really, you know, help inspire you to um, make good movies again instead of bad movies. And one of your good movies is Source Code. Is that the lyrics? Is that the lyrics of the Counted Crow song? It's the lyrics to the Talking Heads song, Mr. Jones. Oh, you know, there's also a Counted Crow song called. So here, I do this. What I would say to you is, yeah, we stare at them beautiful women. Man, there's got to be somebody for me. I want to be Bob Dylan. I don't want to. I don't want to send Duncan Jones any any Counting Crows messages. What about uh, me and Mrs. Mrs. Jones? <laughs> Duncan Jones, if you have a wife, I think she's cheating on you. Uh, <laughs> based on that other song that has a Mrs. Jones. Isn't there a pixie song called like We Got a Monkey thing. Jones or something? Crackety Jones. Crackety yeah. Jones. Crack, crack, crackety Jones. I think that is totally unrelated. I don't know what message Duncan would get from that one. Yeah. I'll, anyway. I'll, I'll uh, the message I want him to get from me is, uh, you know, things could get better. He just needs to get ventilated slacks. Next week with a double feature on Resolution and The Endless. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. <laughs> and I wish you a good night. Or a good morning, or a good afternoon, depending what time of day it is for you. <laughs> um, I hope the people you go on a first date with um, understand that you have uh, murdered their best friend and taken over their buff. <laughs> I hope that on your first date with Michelle Monahan, um, you take them to a good hot dog place that's not filled with lots of tourists, and you can sit down. And have a Coca-Cola, not a Pepsi. And maybe have a moment where you explain that you hijacked via a government program called Beleaguered Castle the body of the man that they loved. And now they're stuck with you. And that you promise that their internal soul face is much more handsome than the face that they're seeing right now. <laughs> One final reminder as well. Um, if, uh, if a cable is too expensive for you, um, because it does cost a lot, but sometimes liking uh, live news is helpful, I would recommend getting in uh, the Beleaguered Castle program because while you're somewhere between life and death in a coma state by the U.S. government, uh, the channel CNN comes in loud and clear on the TV in your imaginary <laughs> capsule. <laughs> where you can confirm or deny news reports that it's telling you about. <laughs> we didn't talk about it, but it's super weird. Also, I guess that's product placement they paid for, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> we here at CNN decided that we wanted to be the number one news source for secretive government agencies that apparently get their news sources from TV. <laughs> CNN, the number one name in news for uh, airports, uh, your barber shop, and uh, coma patients' brains. <laughs> CNN, we make you stay away from the light. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Jones is back! Jones. And wind your waist. Tight pants. Ain't got curly hair. Drinking cold beer. Metal cans, moonshine, 
Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs>